This is Update One, the podcast of the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. Update One provides a forum for listeners to learn about national and international stories, focusing on journalism and communication issues, news, and politics. Now, the latest edition of Update One. With the 2020 election campaign beginning in earnest, on this edition of Update One, we talk with Larry Barrett, a veteran political journalist who's covered campaigns and elections in the White House in a long career with Time magazine. And before that, for the New York Herald Tribune, I'm Irv Chapman, a longtime member of the National Press Club. Larry, what are the lessons that have been learned or should have been learned from the 2016 experience? Lessons learned by the news media, for example. The main lesson to my eye and ear is that the nominating system under which we function or try to function, which was always quirky and flawed, is now dysfunctional. The uh, Republican outcome in 2016 is Exhibit A, what the Democrats are doing now and how the media are coping with it, Exhibit B. Now, whether the media has can do something about it, so to speak, how they should better handle it. This is going to be evident, or we're going to have a look at that in the next few months. I think one one step in the right direction is the early use of so-called town halls for individual Democratic candidates so that voters can get an idea of who this person is and what this person stands for. I think these mass debates are ridiculous. Well, we're going to see them uh, come midsummer. But, you know, if uh, in the last presidential election, Donald Trump was treated as a television celebrity and not taken seriously. Uh, one would imagine it'll be a little different this time. But is President Trump indicating that he's going to make the same kind of beat the same kind of drums as he did the last time? I think so. That is, he's going to vilify any and all opponents, uh, and he's going to indulge in bumper sticker platform items, uh, and he's going to give us plenty of fake news, which he's doing almost every day today. Well, how about the issues? Is... You covered uh, Ronald Reagan as president and wrote a book about him. Is there anything for Reagan Republicans to compare him with Donald Trump? Yes, there are a few points of comparison. Uh, One thing they had in common, or Trump has in common with Reagan, is he focused, Trump managed to focus on a relatively small number of high-priority items which are easily expressed in short terms. With Reagan, it was cutting taxes, cutting regulation, beefing up the military, and being more aggressive toward the Soviet Union. Those were his main points, and they were easy to express. With Trump, a handful of points. Very tough on immigration, legal and illegal, and the wall is part of that. Cut taxes and cut regulation get away from multilateral agreements and go for more bilateral agreements. And, of course, the trade issue, which is part of, part of that. And appoint very, very conservative judges to the court. So in that sense, there are similarities between Reagan 
and Trump. I think after that, the similarities disappear. Uh, Reagan, whether you liked his policies or didn't like his policies, did bring a certain dignity to the office. Reagan would never dream of hurling personal insults at competitors, certainly not fellow Republicans. He had the so-called 11th Amendment. Don't speak ill of fellow Republicans, which he more or less followed in his various campaigns, not only in 1980, but 1976. Uh, Trump, of course, denigrates everybody and anything, institutions left and right, and personalities. But on the issues, uh, he diverged with Reagan only on trade and immigration, because all the others that you named are standard-issue Republican strategies. Up to a point. George Will likes to use the term the Republican faction of the Republican Party. (laughs) Reagan was much closer to the Republican faction of the Republican Party. Uh, And that is, he was basically center-right, not aberrational. Uh, For instance, he also tried to appoint conservatives to the bench, but Reagan's first appointment was Sandra Day O'Connor, not only the first woman, but more or less moderate. Trump's appointments are hardline right, Corsage, uh, et cetera, at all. So, yes, they're both Republicans up to a point, but Reagan was certainly in favor of, of preserving NATO and keeping alliances with allies. Trump seems to be disparaging the allies and embracing opponents. In election terms, how powerful a factor is being the incumbent? After all, some recent presidents were voted out of office after only their first term. Yes, and in almost every case in recent history, that is going back to the 60s, I mean, I include LBJ in that, that he had to voluntarily, in quotes, withdraw Each incumbent who didn't make it in the second go-round or subsequent go-round had a viable or at least notable primary opponent. So far, Trump does not. Bill Well does not really qualify, in my view, as a viable opponent. He's been out of office much too long. Nobody remembers him. He ran as a libertarian. Now, if Trump had a real opponent... In the, on the Republican side, who wouldn't have a chance of winning, but who could at least distract him and cause him to divert resources, uh, he would uh, have a harder time. As things stand now, given where the economy is, given that the Democrats are having a good deal of difficulty focusing, given the whole impeachment question, other investigations, Trump has a pretty good chance of being reelected. What's the uh, difference, you think, between all of the Democrats who are contending for the uh, nomination compared with almost as many Republicans in 2016? Oh, I think there are probably five or six more Democrats or seven. I don't remember the number uh, in 2016 at the beginning. Uh, there are a couple of differences. Uh, the Democratic field now is much more diverse in a realistic sense. I mean, in 2016, there was one woman who entered late and really had no chance whatsoever. And there was one person of color, Ben Carson, and he never really gained much traction. The Democratic field now is richly diverse, which I think is a good thing. Also, I think there is no truly aberrational character among the Democrats, at least among the 
eight or 10 Democrats who are likely to still be campaigning three months from now after the money primary is over, uh, they are more serious types. Well, how about uh, your own experiences covering campaigns? Was it fun? Was it a grind or both? I loved covering national politics. I particularly loved covering the early phases of it back in the day when you could actually get fairly close to a candidate. I don't mean close ideologically. I mean close physically and mentally. In the early days of the Goldwater campaign, in the, the run-up to, to, to the nomination effort, there was a period of, I think, about two, three months when only four journalists traveled with him regularly. There was Wally Mears of AP, Robin McNeil, then of NBC, Charlie Moore of the New York Times, and moi. And traveling with Goldwater, that before Goldwater got very uh, angry at the press and his handlers started to separate him from the press because he was getting, they, they thought the mainstream press was mistreating him. But in those very early days, you really got to know Barry Goldwater. Even later in 1980, in the very early stages, uh, you did get to see Reagan up close, as well as George Bush and a few others. Uh, and that was very, very interesting, and it gave you a feeling that you knew what you were writing about. I think that has decreased as time has gone along, and I think today's campaign uh, correspondents don't get that much proximity, and that's a, that's a shame for them. But I always enjoyed it. Well, how did the candidates, you mentioned Goldwater and uh, in this connection, but how do the candidates, by and large, try to use the traveling press, which uh, once were known as free media or earned media, as opposed to paid advertising? Candidates use them the way politicians try to use the press. They try to get the press, electronic or print, to give them a good shake, to present their points of view in a, in a fair way or a favorable way and not to criticize them. Uh, you know, it's, it's a two-way street. You cover these folks, and you try to get interesting, valid stories, and uh, they hope that you present their points of view. And rarely are both sides satisfied at once. But uh, as a journalist, uh, you did regard it as an obligation to fairly present their point of view. Of course I did. But I worked for news organizations, the Herald Tribune initially, and Time, as you mentioned, that were conventional news organizations. I mean, certainly some of the Time owners and editors had their own views, but I never felt constricted uh, when I was on the road or when I was even back at headquarters as a, an inside writer and editor in the nation section writing about, say, the, uh, the Nixon campaign. Uh, I never felt under any bonds. Now, today, if you work, say, for Fox News, I don't think you have that freedom. Or if you work for MSNBC, for that matter. The broadcast media in particular have become somewhat more polarized than they were in olden times. Which has led to enormous profitability that didn't exist before. Yes, and it has led to uh, poor service for the audience, I think. I think... This has been a bugaboo of mine going back a number of elections, but it's, it's worse now. The, the use of resources, particularly very early on for polling, I think does not have public service. Polling at this stage reveals very little. 
I think they should be using time, money, personnel power to explain the major issues, to really put it out there. Now, it's kind of boring to do a 30-minute or 60-minute segment on what's really happening with the climate, with climate change. But given that a sizable minority of the public still goes along with climate change denial is really kind of tragic at this stage of the world's evolution. Are the media doing as much as they should? In my opinion, no. Well, even in, in the old days, uh, the serious media did a story on each major issue and then turned to the horse race. Right. Day after day. I didn't like it then, and I like it even less now. Does foreign policy have any impact at all as an election issue in times past or today? I think foreign policy plays a part only when the public is aroused or frightened or the little Abner effect. But generally speaking, particularly since the end of the military draft in the 1970s, I think the public has been largely disinterested. I mean, the fact that the war in Afghanistan has been going on since 2001 uh, is an historic development. We have never been involved in a war that long. But in my view, and I think the pollsters back this up, the public is not paying much attention. Now, after something like 9-11, yes, they pay attention. But if you look back at uh, George Bush Sr.'s one-term tenure, the first Persian Gulf War was a huge success. He got the Iraqis out of Kuwait efficiently. He put together a wonderful alliance. He had a brief rally in terms of his approval rating. And then within six or eight or 10 months, that was forgotten as the economy turned sour. And of course, he had to break his no new taxes, read my lips pledge and raise taxes. And hence, he was vulnerable going into the 92 campaign, even though in foreign policy terms, he had been very successful. And with quite a resume as a foreign policy specialist. That's right. Now, had, the, had that first Persian Gulf War occurred a year later, much closer to the election, maybe that would have got him a second term. You can't rewrite history, but it's possible. Well, and maybe we'll have an interesting election after all. On this edition of Update One, we've been talking with veteran political journalist Larry Barrett, member of Chapman at the National Press Club in Washington. Thank you. Update One is a production of the National Press Club's Broadcast Podcast Committee. You can comment on this podcast or any episode of Update One by sending an email to Update One Podcast. That's Update the Number One Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Update One. Update One.